Our Father and our God, we bow before you with thankful hearts for your goodness and grace that you have put within our lives so that we desire to gather together on this Sunday evening to worship you in truth and spirit. We thank you, Father, that you did not leave us in our sin, but you drew us to yourself and that you have loved us with an everlasting love. We pray, Father, that as we think upon this passage tonight, the betrayal of Judas and see his lack of love, his betrayal of the one who had shown him much kindness and goodness and love. We pray, Father, that we would never behave in such a manner. And Father, we pray that when we do sin against you and against your son, that we would seek forgiveness and receive it, for we know that you have promised it to us. We pray, Father, that we would learn from his life what we should not do and that we would learn how to love you in a manner that's pleasing to you and to stand with you and not forsake you. Father, we pray that you would give us strength to live a life that is pleasing to you and honoring to you. Bless us with your presence this evening by your spirit to teach us truth. And this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 14 and we'll pick up where we left off this morning with verse 42. Mark chapter 13, verse 42. And immediately while he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priest and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Take him, lead him away safely. And as soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and he said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not take me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all forsook him and fled. This morning we saw the last words that Jesus spoke to Peter, James, and John there in the garden were, Rise, let us be going to see my betrayer is at hand. Thursday before the crucifixion was a long day and long evening for Jesus and his disciples. He had withdrawn from the people and he had sent his disciples to prepare a meal there in the upper room. Later, he met the twelve there in the upper room. He washed their feet. They ate the Passover meal. He initiated the Lord's Supper. He taught them. There we find those uh, teachings in John chapter 13 all the way up through verse 1 of chapter 17. And then we see that he has this great high priestly prayer. And then they sang 
a hymn, and they left, and they went to the Mount of Olives there to the Garden of Gethsemane. He left the majority of the disciples at the entrance of the garden, and he and the three disciples went into the garden. He placed them in one area, and he went a little further, and he began to pray after asking them to watch and pray. He agonized alone before his heavenly Father. And during this time, we saw that the three disciples were overcome with their weariness, and they fell asleep when Jesus had asked them to watch and pray. Not only one time, but three times, we see that they fell asleep, which, of course, opened up the door for Judas and those who came with him to come and arrest Jesus because they were not watching. There is a great change. The darkness is lit by the torches of this crowd. The silence is broken by noise, and the few are joined by many. Prayer is replaced by shouts, and the kiss of respect is exchanged for a kiss of betrayal. The crucifixion of the Lamb of God, we could say, has been set in motion. God's eternal plan, a man's salvation, is coming to a climax. The wickedness of Judas is used to accomplish the purpose that God had ordained from the beginning of the ages, to save His people from their sins. And Mark tells us that Judas' betrayal, there in verse 35, when he says, And as soon as he had come, he immediately went up to him, and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and he kissed him. He is never again mentioned in the Gospels. This, we could say, is one of the most horrible scenes in Scripture. It's unforgettable as we read it and as we think about it. You may wonder, how can we learn from such actions as this. How can we learn from these wicked actions of not only Judas, but also the religious leaders of that day? Coming and arresting Jesus, as, as Jesus said quite clearly to them, asking them the question, was he a robber? Did they need to come with swords and clubs? I mean, why didn't they arrest him when he was preaching and teaching there in the temple day after day after day. Why in the world do you come at night and treat me like a criminal, treat me like a thief? Well, first of all, I want us to see that the wickedness of man is not only in Judas, but in all who are unconverted. Remember, Jesus told John that one, he gave the piece of bread that was dipped Two was the one that would betray him. Jesus told Judas, What you do, go and do quickly. And we see that Judas left the upper room and headed to the religious leaders. So Judas, a so-called friend of Jesus, left to set up and hand Jesus over to those who wanted to kill him. Jesus had said, But woe unto the man whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better 
for that man if he had not been born. And surely that is true. This sin of betraying Jesus is one of the greatest sins that could be committed. R.C. Sproul said, in John chapter 6, Judas is introduced. The first thing John records about Judas is that he was a devil. What John means by this is that Judas was in alliance with the devil and pursued an alliance in spite of seeing all of the goodness, miracles, and teachings of Jesus. Judas was and remained a devil because he exercised his sinful will to pursue sin. Then in John 12, 6, we are told that Judas was a thief. This too is the exercise of his will to pursue sin. So Judas is in hell because of his sins. God did not give him those sins the way God gives the elect faith, but God allowed the sin of fallen Judas to lead him to where he wanted to go. It is important to see this distinction between the way in which the decrees are exercised while also recognizing both decrees are ultimately to be found in the will of God. So we see quite clearly, as R.C. Sproul said, this was in the ordained will of God. Judas did exactly what Judas wanted to do. No one except the devil made Judas do what he wanted to do. He accepted exactly what the devil put in his heart. And there is in the heart of all men a relentless hatred against God. It lures behind every excuse man makes having nothing to do with God. We don't want to read the Bible. We don't want to read about God. We don't want to know God. We don't want to go to church. We don't want to bow to Christ. Why? Because they hate God. Now, they may not come out and actually say those very words, but in reality, that's the truth. That is sin in the heart of man. And it may be covered up. It may be covered up with courteousness. It may be covered up with respect. They may be a, quote, good moral person, but yet they cannot hide their hatred from God when put to the test. They are like those that we read of in the gospel when they say, we will not have this one rule over us. That's man's natural saying. Jeff Thomas illustrates it in this way. He said that when they had a great annual feast of books in England and Wales that took place, one of the most interesting events was when they brought two brothers together, Christopher and Peter Hengens, notable writers and columnists. These two men who had famously ignored one another for four years. I always read everything Peter wrote in his columns and books. He is one of the most penetrating writers in Britain. But Christopher is totally different. He was asked on stage in the public meeting what was the difference between himself and his brother. And this is what he said. The real difference between Peter and me 
is the belief in the supernatural. I'm a materialist, while he attributes his presence here to a divine plan. I can't stand anyone who believes in God, who invokes the divinity, who is a person of faith. I mean, that to me is horrible, a repulsive thing. Isn't it amazing how God can have grace on one child and pass over the other? And that's the situation here of these two brothers. And the brother who is lost hates the brother who is saved. Why does he hate him? Simply because he believes in God. He is simply saying what most men are afraid to say. So this is a good example of the contemporary human enmity toward God, which is becoming more and more obvious to all of us. I mean, when you see what's going on in our world today, when you see what's going on with the rights and all that, they're not angry simply at the president. They are not angry simply at race. They are angry at God. They hate God. And they're showing it in the fashions and ways that they are demonstrating this in writing. When they're unwilling to submit to authority, they're wanting to overthrow the police. Why? Because they hate any authority that would be over them. The president made an interesting statement that really upset the media last week. Of course, he upsets the media every day. And he said these words, Biden wants to take away your guns, take away your Second Amendment, no religion, no anything, hurt the Bible, hurt God. He's against God. He's against guns. He's against energy. Now, the question we must ask was what he said true. Well, yes and no. Some of the things that he says is a little bit extreme. Uh, there's no way he can hurt the Bible. Uh, there's no way that he can hurt God. Uh, I believe he is against God. Anybody that stands for the things that he stands for is against God. I mean, if you are for the murder of unborn children, then you are standing against God's Word. If you are for homosexual marriage, then you are standing against God's Word. If you are for a number of the liberal ideas that are stated by the candidate, then you are against God. And we have to understand, even though people do not voice it, and of course it upset him, and he wants to proclaim that he's not against God, that he's for God. Of course, every politician wants to make people realize that he's for God. I mean, who's against God? I mean, who isn't for God? That's the mindset that they have. But you look at the actions. You look at their words. You look at what they do. And when you look at those things, then you have to come to the conclusion that they're against what God's Word says. They're standing against God's Word. And there's nothing wrong with making a statement that someone that goes against the Bible is against God. And we have to understand that. There is an extreme hatred for God, and it's more and more evident in our day. Now, the extreme human hatred was 2,000 years ago at Calvary when sinners murdered the Son of God by putting Him on the cross, and they decided that He had no right to continue to live on this earth. He had no right to continue to be heard. He had no right to continue to change the lives of people. That's a decision that sinful people made. Sin reached its darkest point in history in the killing of the spotless, beloved Son of God. And Judas 
in his wicked behavior, betrayed his Lord, his master, and showed just how black and foul human nature can be. Of course, the very first time we saw this is demonstrated in the Garden of Eden. We know that when the devil came to Adam and Eve, he caused them to do what? They betrayed God. They went against exactly what God had told them to do. They did not show love for God, but they betrayed God by doing exactly the opposite from what God told them to do. He said, do not eat from that tree. And they turned around and listened to the devil, believed the devil's lie, and they ate of the tree. Therefore, they betrayed God. But man continues to betray God and to betray Jesus even today. We who live today have a spirit of betrayal in our lives. You and I have at times betrayed our Lord, haven't we? I mean, there are times that we have listened to things that we should not have listened to. It might have been a filthy story. It might have been blasphemy. And we said nothing. We stood there and we were silent. Do we know nothing about betrayal? I am saying that we ourselves know much about betraying our Lord. And it's very fitting that the Lamb of God who bore all the sins of the world should endure this first sin of betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane. Everything that takes place after this particular betrayal there in the Garden of Gethsemane is pure bitterness. The scripture says, He that eats bread with me has lifted his heel against me. So Jesus experienced betrayal so that we, he, or so that he might sympathize with us when we are betrayed. We will be betrayed by others at some point in our life, we will be sinned against. We will be slandered, misrepresented, attacked. And when these things, our way is for us to run to the Lord. Because the Lord understands how it is to be betrayed. The Lord knows the pain. He experienced pain in His humanness when He was betrayed. Knowing that He understands our hurt more than anyone else. And it's a very bitter thing. A bitter thing for him, and it's a bitter thing for us. And we can weep before him. We can say, Lord, my husband or my wife has betrayed me. My co-worker has slandered me. My friend has deserted me. My children have attacked me. And the Lord can sympathize with us. He who is our great high priest sympathizes with us and sends us the perfect relief because he felt the identical pain there in the Garden of Gethsemane, but his pain was far worse than our pain, for he was sinless. What was said about him was not true. None of it was true, for he was sinless. Sometimes when people slander or criticize or attack us, there can be a little bit of truth 
in their reasoning behind that. But not so for Jesus. There was no reason whatsoever. All He had ever done was good and righteous. When Jesus saw these men coming toward Him there in the Garden of Gethsemane, and He saw the one that was directing them to Him was Judas, there wasn't an amazing look upon His face, for He knew what Jesus was going to do. He knew the sinfulness that was in Judas. He knew that His Father had foreordained all of this, everything the garden, in the trials, on the cross, took place exactly as God had designed it before the foundation of the world so that atonement might be made on behalf of His people. The soldiers followed Judas. They were simply instruments used to bring about our redemption. God's hand directed all that took place there in the garden so that all these things together would bring glory to God. For on resurrection morning, Jesus proved that even at the very darkest point there in the garden that all things were being done according to the will of God. Second, Judas was the betrayer who betrayed Jesus Christ. What had Judas been? He had been a disciple. He was chosen by Jesus as one of the twelve. He could never have had a better master. He could have never had a better Lord to serve under. And for nearly three years, he had seen all that Jesus had done. He had seen the miracles. He had seen the signs. He had heard the sermons. He had heard the parables. And Jesus had called him friend. He didn't pretend to love Judas. He showed love to Judas. He showed phileo. He loved him as a friend and he demonstrated to him. He was truly interested in Judas, interested in his needs, and he showed all kinds of kindness to him. In no way did Jesus ever treat him any different from any of the other disciples, but showed him the same love that he showed all the disciples. I mean, what wondrous privileges that Judas had in being set apart to be one of the disciples. We looked at that as far as uh, Peter, James, and John this morning. But notice what these things failed to help him in. The warnings. He received warnings just like the other disciples heard the warnings. Judas had been warned about sin, but yet he failed. There are four warnings in the gospel recorded here in Mark from Jesus warning Judas as far as this sin was concerned. The, petition, the position, Judas held this position, but it did not keep him. I mean, he had heard, as I said, Jesus called him to be an apostle. He was a preacher. He shared in the ministry. He went out with the 72. He was able to cast out demons. He was able to do great and wonderful things. We see there in Hebrews that it speaks, I believe, of Judas. He that had tasted heavenly things. He was involved in heavenly things even though he was not converted. He experienced those things. The knowledge that Judas had did not keep him. 
He heard all of the sermons that Jesus preached. He heard the sermons on the mount. He heard the parables and the teachings of Jesus. When the religious leaders argued with Jesus, he heard the arguments from Jesus and he could remember all of them. You have to remember at this time, there was not the material that we have today to be able to read and study. Everything was done by memory. You heard your rabbis teach and you sought to memorize what they said. You learned what they said so that you could in turn repeat it. And Judas himself had a very good memory. And he had heard these things and he had put them to his memory. But yet his knowledge did not keep him. Judas's conscience did not keep him. We know he had a conscience because he was overwhelmed with guilt later. After he had done this evil thing, we know that he went to the chief priest and tried to give the money back to them. We see in Matthew 27, verses 3 through 5, it says, Then Judas, the betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders and said, I have sinned and by betraying innocent blood. And he said, and they said, what is that to us? You see it? Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Here is man with a conscience a clear sense of right and wrong. He knew that he had done wrong, but his conscience did not keep him. Judas's life was a life that appeared to be blameless in one sense, but his blameless life did not keep him. And you say, where do you get that from? Well, two facts that reveal to us that Judas had an outward appearance of blamelessness. First, he was appointed by the other apostles to keep the money. You don't appoint someone to keep the money who's dishonest, someone who you would think would steal from the money bag. So therefore, we see that they thought he was a blameless man. You would have thought that uh, Levi... Matthew would have been the one that would have kept the money since he was a tax collector and he handled money all the time, but they, they evidently didn't trust Levi enough, didn't trust Matthew, so they appointed Judas. And we see later in Scripture that he also was a thief. Second, when Jesus told them that one of them was going to betray him, they were utterly bewildered, and they all asked each other, Is it I? None of them thought in their mind it was Judas. That's the reason why Peter leaned over to John and told John, ask Jesus who it is. And John asked Jesus, and Jesus whispered back to him, the one whom I take the bread and dip it and hand it to, it is he. And even after that, we don't see that they were enraged and thinking that it was Judas. They thought, as Scripture tells us, they thought that Judas was going to take care of some other business when he got up and left. So Judas's blameless life didn't keep him. What are we trusting in to keep us? Are we trusting in these things to keep us from falling into sin? Spiritual advantages are good, but spiritual advantages will not keep us. We may have had parents who were Christians, who taught us the Word of God, who carried us to church so that we sat under the preaching of the gospel. 
We may have had Christian friends. But none of these things will keep us. They cannot keep us. So all of these may be good, but they will not keep us from falling in to sin as Jesus, Judas fell into. Some may be content with simply having religious privileges, thinking that that is all that they need. There's many that have that particular mindset, thinking that if I go to church, if I read my Bible, if I pray, then I'm okay. I have these religious privileges and it will keep me from sin. Others may lament of not possessing them. And they may say, only if I had a Christian husband or if I'd been given a godly wife or if I had a good congregation to be a part of or if I heard the gospel preaching each Sunday, then therefore I would be kept. And they think to themselves, if I had such privileges, then I would walk with God forever. But yet they're trusting in the privileges instead of trusting in Jesus Christ. It's a mistake to simply trust in the privileges. Judas had all of these privileges and he looked to all of these privileges, but yet he betrayed Christ. Simply having privileges will not save anyone. Think of Joab the captain of David's army, under the man who loved God greatly, a man who was after God's own heart. Yet Joab did not have salvation. Or think of Demas, who was a companion with Paul. He himself returned to the world. Or Lot's wife. She was the husband, or she was the wife of a husband who was a righteous man. But even though they had these privileges, none of them were saved themselves. They all died in their sin, despite their knowledge, despite the warnings, and despite the opportunities that they had. They needed a new heart, a life under the Lordship of Christ. I want to read to you a lengthy quote by J.C. Ryle. Some of you have the book, Holiness. Well, in that particular book of holiness, this is what he says pertaining to this of privileges. He says, let us value religious privileges, but let us not rest entirely upon them. Let us desire to have the benefits of them in all our moments in life but let us not put them in the place of Christ. Let us use them thankfully if God grants them to us, but let us take care that they produce some fruit in our heart and life. If they do not do good, they often do positive harm. And you know what he's saying by that. Some people put their trust in privileges and going to church and having Christian parents and all of these other things instead of putting their trust in Christ. That way it does positive harm. They sear the conscience. They increase responsibilities. They aggravate condemnation. The same fire which melts the wax hardens the clay. The same sun which makes the living tree grow dries the dead tree and prepares it to be burned. Nothing so hardens the heart of man as a barren familiarity with sacred things. Once more I say, it is not privileges alone which, but the grace of the Holy Ghost. Without that, no man will ever be saved. I asked the members of an evangelical, evangelical congregation in the present day to mark well what I am saying. You go to Mr. A or Mr. B's church, 
You think him excellent preacher. You delight in his sermons. You cannot hear anyone else with the same comfort. You have learned many things since you attend his ministry. You consider it a great privilege to be one of his hearers. All this is very good. It's a privilege. I should be thankful if ministers like yours were multiplied by thousands. But after all, what have you got in your heart? Have you yet received the Holy Ghost? If not, you are not better than Judas. If I ask the children of religious parents to mark well what I am saying, it is the highest privilege to be a child of a godly father and mother and to be brought up in the midst of many prayers. It is a blessed thing indeed to be taught the gospel from your earliest infancy and to hear of sin and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the holiness and heaven from the first moment you can remember anything. But oh, take heed that you do not remain barren and unfruitful in the sunshine of all of these privileges. Beware lest your heart remains hard, impenitent, and worldly, notwithstanding the many advantages you enjoy. You cannot enter the kingdom of God on the credit of your parents' religion. You must eat the bread of life for yourself and have the witness of the Spirit in your heart. You must have repentance of your own, faith of your own, sanctification of your own. If not, you are no better than Judas. I pray, God, that all professing Christians in these days may lay these things to heart. May we never forget the privilege alone cannot save us. Light and knowledge and faithful preaching and abundant means of grace and the company of holy people are all great blessings and advantages. Happy are they that have them. But after all, there is one thing without which privileges are useless. That one thing is the grace of the Holy Spirit. How true those words by J.C. Ryle are. Judas had many privileges. He had great privileges. But Judas had no grace. Look at the kiss. Immediately, it says, he went up to him and said, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him, verse 45. Now, this particular kiss that Judas gave to Jesus was a sign of oneness. It was saying, there's no alienation between us. What a hypocrite. To kiss Jesus and use that particular kiss in doing so, one that said there's no alienation when he was betraying him. Judas turned Jesus over to the death on the cross with a warm gesture of love. Think of it. He actually planned this out. He goes to religious leaders and he tells the religious leaders, the way that you will know who Jesus is, I will give him this kiss of affection. And therefore, when the soldiers see me kiss him, they will know who to arrest. Now, it's interesting. It's not found here in the Gospel of Mark, but it's found in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 22, verse 48, 
it tells us that Jesus responded. Here are the words that Jesus responded with. Judas, you are betraying the Son of Man with a kiss. Now our prayer would have been that those words that Jesus spoke to Judas would have been like a dagger. Like that dagger that Peter received when Jesus turned and looked at him after he had sinned against him by denying him the third time. We pray that that would have happened to Judas, that he would have been pierced by these words of Jesus. The additional pain for Jesus was that Judas, you were betraying me with a kiss, kissing the Son of God. You have sold me for 30 pieces of silver by means of a kiss. Charles Spurgeon said, Judas betrayed his master with a kiss. That is how most apostates do it. It is always with a kiss. Did you ever read an infidel book in your life which did not begin with a profound respect for truth? I never have. Even modern ones, when bishops write them, always begin like that. They betray the Son of Man with a kiss. Did you ever read a book of a bitter controversy which did not begin with such a sickly lot of humanity? Such sugar, such butter, such things sweet and soft. And you say, ha, there is sure to be something bad here. For when people begin so soft and sweet, so humbly and so smoothly, depend upon it, they have rank hatred in their heart. The most devout looking people are often the most critical in the world. And this is so true. We are to be wise as far as other people are to go. You know, we talk about first impressions. Usually first impressions are not correct impressions. It takes a while to get to know a person. It takes a while to really know what that person is thinking and how that person behaves. We see here Judas is just the opposite. After Jesus had known him for three years, we see that his bitterness and his hatred shows up. And then finally, what are the consequences of his betrayal? We see that he didn't enjoy his 30 pieces of silver that he received. After the guilty verdict was passed, Judas did what? Well, we see the consequences of his actions. He was inconsolable. He took his own life. What he did was not the unforgivable sin. He did not blaspheme the Holy Spirit, but yet he allowed the devil to work in his life. Every Christian believes that if Judas would have fell on his face and bowed before the cross and cried out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, that Jesus would have gladly forgiven him. We have no knowledge that Judas ever repented of this sin. Therefore, Judas has spent all of this time in eternal hell. That was the consequences of the betrayal 
of Judas. Unrepentant betrayal takes a sinner to hell. Now notice how our text says Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. That number is not a minor number. That number is a very important number. It's a biblical number. It was chosen to be the number of the patriarch, the twelve sons of Israel, the twelve children, the twelve tribes of Israel. And that twelve was necessarily the number that was given to Jesus to give to the apostles so that he would demonstrate that he was the father of the young Israel. Just as Jacob was the father of old Israel, the Israel of the flesh, and Jesus would be the father of Israel of the spirit. So when Jesus chose the twelve, he's gathering around him the new Israel the new Jerusalem. And those 12 men were to be what? They were to be the light of the world. They were to stand with Christ. And Jesus Christ is going to use these 12 men as He commissioned them to go into the world, to go into all nations, and to do what? And to make disciples of all nations. It took some strong faith to give that universal commission in such terms. And we see that the world was changed by these men. Jesus' whole soul was linked to the twelve apostles. He as the Messiah will raise and fall with the twelve. And He appointed them. He appointed them to teach and to train others as He taught and trained them. He commissioned them. And He needed them to go forth into all the world as He commissioned them. And therefore His office will rise and fall with the work of this beautiful, unaltered twelve. But now we see the brutal pain. Jeff Thomas says, Judas, one of the twelve appears and he betrays him. The perfect number of twelve is broken. Hell laughs that this son, this Jesus of Nazareth, with his pretension of the world dominion through the apostles, you are the salt of the earth indeed. It's all crashing down at the first hurdle, isn't it? Long before he gets to Golgotha, one of his hand-picked, personally trained twelve sells him. Judas tears up the whole neat system. He reduces the twelve to eleven. What a foolish number, all this I say, in part of the anathema that Jesus is entering. This holy and realm number is shattered. Where is the foundation of the church? One of its main foundation stones has gone. The whole Ephesus to stand on is already looking a bit wobbly. Where is Christian preaching heading? What an offense to Jesus' messianic consciousness was His apostolic betrayal. Eleven, only eleven, the perfect number is broken. See, the betrayal brought deep suffering to Jesus. This kiss of Judas is more than a sinister act of individual treasury. It is an apostle, one whom Jesus had 
chosen. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you, is what he told the apostles. Jesus died with a broken number. Not 12, but 11. Do you see how severely God is testing His Son at this time? How Satan is seeking to tempt Him. You began with 12, the devil possibly whispered. Three slept in the garden. Two denied with cursing. One betrayed you, and they all ran off and left you. How many are going to end up with you? It's falling apart. It's all going to end in failure. Those may have been the words of Satan in the ear of Jesus, whispering those words to him as he was hanging on the cross for hours in pain as the nails in his hand and in his feet gave him that pain. Christ's work of bringing salvation to the world, as Satan was saying to him, would not happen. But how untrue that is. For Christ bore the pain, and Christ knew that Judas would betray him. Christ knew that his other disciples would desert him there in the garden, as it says here in the Scripture, that they all left him. They all forsook him and fled. He knew the pain of being betrayed, not only by Judas, but he was betrayed by all of the disciples. But of course, 11 of them sought forgiveness and were restored and were used by God to bring about the awakening, to bring about salvation, to bring about the church of Jesus Christ. They all would return eventually to Him and be used of Him to bring about the gospel message as they went into all the world and made disciples. But as I mentioned at the very beginning, we can be just as guilty as Judas in betraying our Lord. So therefore, we must do, as we looked at this morning, we must constantly watch and pray. We must constantly watch and pray because we know that Satan is there at every turn seeking to cause us to stumble, seeking to lead us astray, seeking to cause us to give up. We live in a dark day. We know that here in America. I just am thankful that it's not a dark day all over the world that God is doing great and marvelous things in other countries and nations. And I do know the difference between a country and a nation, even though this morning I may have said that African was a country, a continent, not a continent, I did not say that. It is a continent with many countries within it. And one of those countries is Zambia, which I enjoy going to, and of course which Fasant is coming from. But many countries there in Africa are being renewed. God is doing a great and amazing work in Africa as well as in China and other countries. And that is so pleasing to us to know that the gospel continues to move forward. And we pray that God would bring about an awakening in our day in this country and turn us back. Turn us back to the God that this country was founded upon. Our God is a great God and our God is able to do great and glorious things and we should watch and we should pray. We should pray for that. Daily we should pray that God would bring about an awakening in our day and bring glory and honor to Himself. We have a great God and therefore we must be faithful and we must not betray our Savior but be faithful to the task that He has called us to so that He might use us 
to bring such about in our day. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you that we can learn from the betrayal of Judas what you have called us to do, that we can learn from his betrayal so that we might be faithful, that we can cling to the cross, that we can look to Jesus. Do not allow us to put trust in the privileges that we have, but Father, to only put our trust in Christ and Christ alone. And we pray, Father, for any that are here tonight that do not know Christ as Lord and Savior, that today would be the day of salvation, that your Spirit would work in their heart and change their heart and bring them to see their sinfulness and cry out to Christ in repentance and faith so that they might be in the kingdom of God. How we pray, Father, for the salvation of your people. And this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.